Thank you, Kathy. Um, please leave your Bible open there so that we can uh, meet and get to know Priscilla and Aquila uh, well this morning. Uh, I wonder if in your life you uh, look for examples, uh, that is, examples of, of other people uh, who you, you want to be like. Uh, I reckon it's not very Australian to do that. Uh, that is, we tend to be fiercely kind of self-reliant people, I think, in Australia. We're taught that that's, that's what it means to be strong, to kind of just be your own person. Um, and you might even think, as a Christian, well, I mean, how many examples do I need? I've got Jesus. Isn't that enough? Now, in one sense, yes, of course, Jesus is sufficient. And we can look to Jesus and, uh, and in him find all we need. But there's another sense in which that's not enough. That is, none of us is called to be Jesus. You might have heard people use that language before, but we're not actually, we can't be Jesus. What we are called to be is followers of Jesus. And so the best examples are other followers of Jesus who are doing that well, because that's what we're called to be, followers of Jesus. Uh, and the Bible presents many great examples, and they're presented to us for our benefit. That is, they're presented to us that we might meet them, get to know them, see how they're following Jesus, see the way that they make their choices and the way that they use what God has given them at, to be good followers of Jesus. And we've come across many of them, haven't we, uh, in this term as we've been studying Acts and meeting witness after witness after witness. And our focus has been on that, that function that they played, that role as witnesses. But even in their character, I hope that you've learnt much of what it means to be a good follower of Jesus. But I also want to encourage you and challenge you, not only to be somebody who looks for good examples, but who actually wants to be a good example. Someone who, who plays a role in the lives of others by being that step or two ahead of them in following Jesus and being conscious of who's around you and who's behind, that you might draw them along with you as we all follow Jesus together. And one of the great things is we, we look at people like Priscilla and Aquila and we can go, oh, I, I want to follow their example. But we can also look at them and go, I want to be like them in being a good example to others around me. So uh, let's pray that God would uh, help us to see through Priscilla and Aquila how we can uh, do both those things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for uh, the fact that we are not uh, at all left on our own in working out what it means to follow Jesus, that we have your good word uh, and that it is full of human beings just like us who have heard the good news of Jesus, who have heard that you have sent your one and only son into the world to save sinners and you have achieved that salvation through his death and his resurrection and all you desire for us and all you ask from us is that we put our trust in him and put our life in his hands. 
Father, that means, though, that life will be transformed. Life will be shaped by that, uh, that one new relationship that we have with Jesus. And we ask that you'll help us today as we look at Priscilla and Aquila as they follow Jesus. Teach us to be like them, both in following Jesus and helping others to follow Jesus too. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, uh, if you've been uh, following along this term and uh, kind of keeping an eye on the uh, Brady Bunch picture, uh, last week we hit a first, that is we came to the first woman, uh, first female witness, Lydia, and we learned from her example. And this week we come to another first, it's the first couple, as Katie pointed out, Priscilla and Aquila. And uh, it's an interesting fact in the Bible that most of the people you meet seem to be, uh, they're either single or the people who've written the Bible just aren't interested in telling you about their family. Um, It's certainly true in Acts and the Witnesses and part of that's probably because of the sort of itinerant nature of ministry at the time, that it was the story of the spread of the gospel and how as people travelled around with the gospel, uh, they they took the, they uh, spread the good news of Jesus. Um, But even among uh, Jesus' first disciples, the 12, uh, the only one who's, we're given a hint that he was married is Peter, and we're not introduced to his wife even, just his mother-in-law, uh, and uh, we're, I'm pretty sure no one would have a mother-in-law if they didn't come with a wife, so uh, we can surmise that Peter was married. Um, the others, uh, we just don't know about. And it's an interesting fact uh, that couples are so few and far between, children even more scarce. Um, I'm sure they were around, but they just don't feature in the story. And uh, in 1 Corinthians uh, 7, I think we're giving a little, little bit of a, an insight into uh, why this might have been the case. Paul has something very interesting to say about marriage and singleness in 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, I'll read a few verses to you. This is 1 Corinthians 7, verse 32. Uh, I'd like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. So if you're ever wondering where uh, happy wife, happy life came from, there you go, it's in the Bible, okay? Uh, but listen to the description, and his interests, that is the married man, his interests are divided. That is, they're divided between serving the Lord and serving his wife, between the world to come and this world. But it's not just men, uh, the same is true for married women and unmarried women. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit, but a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Uh, Paul actually sees it, I think in our culture, maybe we see singleness as a sort of a lesser state, But Paul actually sees for those who follow Jesus and who have following Jesus and representing Jesus and his concerns foremost, that there is no lesser state and that there are, in fact, even advantages in singleness. 
And uh, he says clearly, if you're single, therefore, consider staying single. And if you're married, stay married. And I reckon we need to hear that as a culture. If we do elevate marriage, we need to consider why we do that. Of course, there are good things about marriage. It's a blessing, a gift from God. But it's not better, not in the eyes of the Lord, not in terms of ability to serve the Lord Jesus. But it's okay if you're married as well. And uh, Priscilla and Aquila (laughs) are a great encouragement to those of us who are married. But we need to see that the reason they're an encouragement is because they were not divided. They weren't divided. They were united in their concern for the things of the Lord. That is, they lived their marriage in a particular way. And that is, they, were, they weren't focused primarily, first and foremost, on pleasing one another, but rather on pleasing Christ together. And so we're going to see uh, that that's, if you're a married person, the kind of uh, marriage you should be aspiring to. Uh, but we're also going to see that there's um, plenty of opportunity for those who are single to serve the Lord as well. Uh, So, uh, we meet Priscilla and Aquila, not first, actually, in the passage that was read for us from verse 18, but actually back at the start of the chapter in in, uh, verse 1. There's a whole bunch of uh, different places named, uh, and people are on the move, and that's a feature of this part of the Bible, isn't it? Because the gospel is on the move. Uh, After this, Paul left Athens, and he went to Corinth. So, as Tony said, uh, Athens is kind of in the uh, east, uh, a little bit over to the east of Greece, sort of central, actually. And uh, Corinth, if you know, if you can picture on a map of Greece, the bit I always think of or picture when I think of Greece is that kind of um, broken hand that sort of hangs down at the bottom of Greece into the Mediterranean. It sort of looks a little bit like this with four fingers. It's a Simpsons hand. And uh, it hangs down there. And that's called the the Peloponnesus Peninsula. And uh, Corinth is on the little bit of land that joins that that peninsula with the sort of mainland part of Greece and over to Athens. Uh, They've actually built a canal uh, down there now so that you you don't have to go all the way around. You can can go through. It's it's only a sort of narrow neck. And being that sort of place, uh, it it received a lot of traffic, both, uh, you know, floating traffic and also traffic by road. Uh, And it was a great... uh, market centre and a great place where people would travel to and do business and trade and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, uh, Paul has left Athens and arrived in Corinth, uh, but others have been travelling to Corinth as well. And there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, don't worry about where that is, uh, who had recently come from Italy, that's more important. Uh, He'd recently come from Italy uh, with his wife Priscilla, not because, not for the uh, business opportunity so much, but because they were actually kicked out of Italy. Uh, They were refugees, not just travellers. You read this and it sounds a little bit like they're just cruising around the Mediterranean, Priscilla and Aquila. Um, But actually they were refugees. That is, if you read on, uh, Claudius, the emperor, had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Uh, Now we have a little line uh, from a a Roman historian uh, of the first century, Suetonius, Uh, that records uh, why that was the case, why Claudius kicked the Jews out of Rome. Uh, And he says this, Since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, the emperor expelled them from Rome. 
And uh, most, the majority of historians think that Crestus there is probably Christ. Uh, and that fits our understanding of uh, the, the development of the church, you know, that it was of Jewish origin, that Jesus himself was the Messiah, the Christ of the Jews, uh, that all the first believers uh, were Jews, and uh, they tried to share the good news, the gospel, that Jesus was the Messiah with uh, their Jewish brothers and sisters. Uh, and that caused uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of angst uh, as well. And it seems in, uh, in Rome, in the Jewish community in Rome, there was so much conflict over uh, Christ that uh, the governor or the, the, the emperor just had enough and he booted them out. Now, we're not sure, we don't know exactly whether it was all the Jews who were booted out or some of the Jews and Christians or just the Christians. It's quite likely that at the time, people outside of Judaism didn't understand any distinction really. And so they were just kind of all booted out, both uh, those who believed in Christ and those didn't, who didn't. And so we don't actually know at the beginning of uh, chapter 18 whether uh, before meeting Paul, Priscilla and Aquila are Christians. They're described as Jews. We're not told if they're believers or anything like that. But, uh, and it's likely, as we read in verse uh, 4, because it was always Paul's habit to, when he arrived in a new place, to go to the synagogue first... It's likely that it was at the synagogue that he met Priscilla and Aquila. They would have been there on the Sabbath, uh, uh, worshipping God, uh, and, uh, and he met them. Uh, but it wasn't only their Jewish heritage that they shared in common. Uh, as we heard in the kids' talk, they were all tent makers. Imagine that. What, you two? Um, you know, <laughs> nice tent, nice tent. I like that. Thank you. Yeah, love your tent. Um, and... Uh, and Paul, whether we don't know if he asked for a job, you know, if you've got any work going, I need some work, I need to sort of support myself, or if they, uh, if they offered it to him because they'd met him, liked him, heard what he had to say about Jesus and wanted to hear more. But however it came about, Paul ended up living with and working with Priscilla and Aquila. So they were tight. They were in each other's company uh, seven days a week, Sunday to Friday more than likely, sitting together around the sewing table. I don't know how you made a tent back then, really. But, you know, big needles and fat thread, I guess. Uh, stitching whatever material they had, whether it was hides or uh, some sort of fabric. But stitching it together, doing repairs and all that sort of stuff. And making tents together. But what do you reckon they did? Other than making their tents, I reckon they talked about Jesus, don't you? I mean, knowing what we know of Paul knowing what we know about why he would have been in Corinth. He wasn't there to make tents. He was there to make disciples. And so there he was, six days a week, with Priscilla and Aquila, no doubt, helping them understand that Jesus was the Christ. Or if they already knew that, helping them grow in their knowledge of the Scriptures and how they all pointed forward and declared that Jesus was the Christ. And then together, on Saturdays, on their day off, what would they do? You know it. They would go to the synagogue. And Paul, no doubt, took on a teaching role in the synagogue, as he always did. If he was invited, or maybe even if he wasn't, he would stand up and he would proclaim Jesus. He would proclaim that the Christ has come. You don't need to wait anymore. He's arrived. He's died and he's risen again. And he's at the right hand of the Father, waiting for everything to be brought uh, under his feet, under his rule. And Priscilla and Aquila, seven days a week, were right at, in the thick of it at the heart of it, 
learning from Paul and playing their part in the background, supporting him initially with the work. It seems that when Saul, uh, Silas and Timothy turned up, uh, not exactly clear how, uh, whether they took over the tent-making work from Paul or they found other jobs or whatever, but it seems that once they arrive, Paul doesn't have to work anymore. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy they, uh, came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. The house is filling up, I'm guessing. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila are there. Paul's there. Silas and Timothy are there. And what began as a tent-making business is quickly growing into a disciple-making business. It's exciting times. Uh, it would have been great to be part of that. Uh, and they stay there, well, Paul uh, stays there for 18 months in Corinth. Uh, and it's the Lord who uh, encourages him to stay on, in spite of some of the obstacles. We read in verse 9, One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision don't be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. And so Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God and the word of God had an impact and a church was established. Uh, we read of a couple of places, likely places where those churches gathered uh, in the text. And in the background, the whole time, Priscilla and Aquila, making the tents, keeping the home fires burning, working hard during the day, learning all that they could from Paul uh, in, in uh, their time with him and supporting his ministry. So the, the first part of the example, I think, that Priscilla and Aquila give us uh, is how united they were in using their home and their business as a platform and an opportunity for gospel ministry. They were in the background, but they were happy to serve in that way so that others could be in the foreground in the work of the gospel. So the first uh, part of the example is hospitality. But uh, the time comes to actually take the gospel on the road again. So 18 months later, Paul is ready to travel and Priscilla and Aquila uh, decide, or maybe they're invited to go along, but they go along with Paul uh, down to Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus uh, is uh, over in, uh, in Turkey, and uh, they sail over, I think, and Paul, it's a whistle-stop tour for him, he is moving on, he's heading down to Jerusalem, uh, but Priscilla and Aquila decide to stay. Now, as I said, we can't be sure whether Priscilla and Aquila were Christians when they first met Paul, but we can be sure that they are now and they are fully invested. Uh, that whatever they'd set up in terms of a business in Corinth, they packed up, left, be left other things behind and they took with them on the road uh, to Ephesus. And even when Paul went on, they stayed and they became the nucleus of the church, the beginning of the church in that city. Uh, but they weren't alone for too long. Uh, Paul's travels are journaled there and then in verse 24 we read, meanwhile, meanwhile back at the ranch in Ephesus, uh, a Jew named Apollos appears and this guy is pretty impressive. Now, this guy's hot stuff. Uh, he's, the, he's the big uh, guy on the scene uh, in Ephesus when it comes to gospel ministry. 
uh, a native of Alexandria, so he's from down in uh, Egypt, so this, the south of the Mediterranean, and he uh, comes up to Ephesus, a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. Alexandria was uh, famed for its library and its Jewish community and a place of great learning. Uh, and that's where he was from. Uh, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord as well, and the Lord there is Jesus. So he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervour and taught about Jesus accurately. So he's got, he's got the smarts, he's got the knowledge, and he's got the heart, he's got the passion, he's got the fervour. He's the whole package. Almost. Uh, because there's this one little mention of, of something that's not, you know, it's a bit lacking. And it says, though he knew only the baptism of John. So plenty of potential, but just this weakness. And it seems that um, Priscilla and Aquila spot it. You know, that they're there at the synagogue or wherever Apollos is teaching. And they're impressed and they're loving it. And, uh, and maybe, maybe they just hear after a while, you know, there's something, not, there's something missing here. And then, and then they work out what it is. And they decide that from their experience with Paul, they've actually been equipped and resourced to help Apollos to fill in that gap that's missing and to make him even better at the task that God has equipped him for. Now, it's hard to know exactly what it is that's lacking. Uh, it says there, you know, he knew only the baptism of John. Uh, that's something that kind of is, is fairly common, actually. Uh, John, John is John the Baptist. You'll know John the Baptist came before Jesus, and John came preaching. Uh, he was a big preacher, drew big crowds, baptised lots of people, and he preached, as we read a little further on in chapter 19, verse, uh, verse 4, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. John was preparing the way. He was preparing the way for Jesus. But it seems that what happened was people heard John's message as they gathered together from all around the countryside, and then they went back into the countryside, many of them, before the apostles' teaching landed. Right? And so they took this partial teaching about Jesus uh, where they went. Uh, and that seems to be the case of Apollos. Um, and I reckon uh, one way of understanding the ministry of Priscilla and Aquila to Apollos is to do a bit of a before and after, okay? So let's look at the description, a couple of features of the description of Apollos before, in verse 24 and 25. Uh, we see there that he uh, has a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures, a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. Now, Scriptures there means Old Testament, because that's all they had. Uh, he's had a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament, and in verse 25, we hear that he taught about Jesus accurately, uh, by which we can understand that what he did know about Jesus and what he said about Jesus was true. Right? So it was accurate. It was on the money. But then go down to uh, verse 28, uh, and this is describing Apollos after he's travelled on from Ephesus. He's gone to Achaia. And he arrives there. He's a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Right? 
proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. And here's what I think might have been the heart of Priscilla and Aquila's ministry. That he knew the scriptures and he knew about Jesus, but he wasn't yet able to show from the scriptures how they're all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that was the burden of the apostles' teaching. If you go from Luke 24, when the risen Lord Jesus gathers all the disciples together, what does he do? He shows them uh, everything that is written in all the scriptures concerning himself. He reveals the ministry of the Lord Jesus and the expectation of the Lord Jesus in the Old Testament. He unpacks the Old Testament for them. He shows them that when Abraham took his son Isaac up the mountain to sacrifice him at the word of the Lord. And right at the last minute, he didn't have to give his own son because the Lord provided a ram so that the ram could be sacrificed in the place of the firstborn son of Israel, that that was, that was looking forward to Jesus. That, that when Israel was being rescued from slavery in Egypt and they too were called to uh, kill kill a sheep or a goat and to paint the blood of the goat over the doors so that the destroying angel, the the judgment of God would pass over their households and the people of God would be protected under the blood of the lamb, that that too was pointing forward to the salvation that was going to be brought through the blood of the lamb of God, Jesus, who took away the sins of the world. And again and again and again throughout the Old Testament scriptures, it was Jesus that was anticipated. And now Jesus had come and Jesus is the Messiah and you put your trust in Jesus and he will, re- he will unite you to God. I think that was what Priscilla and Aquila helped Apollos to see again and again and again in the Old Testament scriptures and it strengthened his ministry no end. When Priscilla and Aquila heard Apollos preach, they were impressed. And yet they knew that there was something they could do to help him, to make him even better than he already was. And I love that this too, just like their tent-making ministry, just like their ministry in their home, this ministry was something they did together. Priscilla and Aquila, together, teaching Apollos. Not one with the other sitting quietly beside. Uh, There's even some people who suggest that Priscilla sort of took the lead in Uh, in this teaching. She's named first. Four out of the six occasions when Priscilla and Aquila are named, and I'm even saying it now, I'm not saying Aquila and Priscilla. I'm saying Priscilla and Aquila because that's the main way that they're presented in the Bible. Some people say that she was taking the lead in this teaching ministry with her husband alongside her, supporting, agreeing, complimenting. Now, I don't know if that's actually accurate. I think it's more helpful to see that not who's first or who's second, but that they're always together. They're completely united in this, in this work and this ministry, taking every opportunity together. It's a wonderful thing and certainly something that's been a wonderful blessing in my marriage, me and Sue's. You know, when uh, we were first married, it was five years until we had our first uh, child, Daisy. And those five years were uh, very together. We were so together in ministry. We'd just moved to Lismore. So similar to these guys, you know, just arrived in a new place and we'd gone there to help people know Jesus, to help plan a church, help people know Jesus. And for five years, it was all ministry together. And then kids came along. <laughs> and, 
our concerns became a little bit divided, I suppose, in a way. But we still tried to do what we could together. Uh, whether it was having people in our home, leading Bible studies or evangelistic courses, doing marriage prep, just visiting people, if there was opportunity to do it together, then it was always better to do it together. I think it was better for us as a married couple and I think that in many cases it was better for those that we were serving, ministering to. And so let me encourage you, if you're a married person, if you're, a, sorry, I should say, if you're married to another believer, then look for opportunities, make opportunities to serve together, to serve the Lord Jesus together, to make your marriage about something far more important than your marriage. Your marriage is a great gift from God, but it's not an end in itself. Take the opportunity to serve together, whether it's as Priscilla and Aquila did, simply opening your home, inviting others in to share fellowship, or supporting ministry in the background in some other way, or whether it is some kind of teaching opportunity that you have, an opportunity to learn and then teach and train others, take it up and do it together. But you don't have to be married uh, to do the kind of ministry that Priscilla and Aquila did. And I think that's just as important to see. Uh, you can be hospitable. You can help others know the truth better. You can serve the church that you're part of in many ways, uh, whether you are single or married. Uh, in my own uh, life, there's a lady, uh, her name is Karen, single lady, been single all her life. She's uh, just, she's... 61 or 62 now, so about 10, 12 years older than me. And uh, she's just, I might have even mentioned her before to you um, because she just was so important in my life. She was the youth leader uh, in my church growing up. And when I say the youth leader, I mean it. She was it. Now, that wasn't too big a deal because there weren't many youth. So it wasn't a big ministry, certainly wasn't celebrated, uh, but she took it on. And she took us on and uh, she equipped, she, she invested, she actually, she was a marine biologist, right? So she was never paid a cent for doing youth ministry. She was a marine biologist by day. And I remember one year, she actually took a whole year off work to go to Bible college to be better trained for what? For youth ministry to a handful of teenagers in her church, in her local church. And one of the best things she did was during that time, she learned how all the Old Testament points to Jesus. And she came back and she taught us, look what I found in the Bible. Look what I've been taught. And she passed that on. And it's a wonderful legacy. Uh, I visited Karen uh, just, I don't know, a few months ago. And uh, she's... Uh, dealing with cancer at the moment, um, but such a trooper, you know, still doing all the ministry that she can and really keen to ask my opinion, you know, now. And it's just weird, <laughs> you know. What do you think? Here's the group that I'm leading at the moment. They're wrestling with these issues. How can I help them? So we've seen from Priscilla and Aquila 
um, the role that hospitality can play. We've seen uh, the opportunity that they had to, to see potential in somebody and get alongside that person and equip them even more, support them uh, so that they might reach their full potential in their ministry of the gospel. And finally, I reckon uh, what we see with these guys is their willingness to pay the cost of sending people on. Um, down at, at the end of the chapter, um, Apollos wants to take the gospel somewhere else, to Achaia. And the brothers and sisters, no doubt including Priscilla and Aquila, perhaps even led by Priscilla and Aquila, encouraged him, yeah, go, you know, you've done such great work here, but there's a whole world out there that needs to know Jesus, go, if you, if you want to go, go. They encouraged him and wrote to the disciples in that area to welcome him. And when he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. Uh, as a church, we have this kind of opportunity. We have an opportunity to, um, in our partnership, particularly with, uh, with GCS, uh, the uni ministry on campus, we have these young men and women who uh, learn, learn the gospel and they desire to help others know Jesus. And we can get alongside them and we can equip them and train them. But uh, if, if they're really good, you know, it, if they have that potential and it sort of is really blossoming, then often what happens is we have to send them. That is, uh, they need to go. They need to take the gospel beyond here. And uh, it's up to us to identify the potential and to uh, pay the cost of uh, training them and sending them on. And uh, we want to be doing that year after year after year. Not because we're sick of them, we've had enough, we haven't got enough money to pay them anymore or anything like that, um, but because we know their heart is for the Lord and for taking the gospel out to other places and other people, and that's our heart too. And so we pay the cost. And we shouldn't be surprised that there's a cost, should we? Because remember, uh, all the way along, right from the beginning, we've known that this word witness is also the word martyr. Remember that, the Greek word? It's martyr. When you follow Jesus, he says, take up your cross. It'll cost you. Follow me. And one of the ways that it costs us uh, is to send. But like Peter and Stephen and Philip and Paul and Barnabas and Lydia, Priscilla and Aquila were eager to play their part and to pay the price because they knew that Jesus was worth it. Let's pray that we would be eager also. Let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, thank you so much for all the witnesses who we have met in our time in Acts. Help us not to forget them. In fact, far from forgetting them, uh, please plant their example deep in our minds and hearts that their stories might transform us and our story that we wouldn't be content to live lives that are consumed by worldly concerns, but rather that we'd be eager and desire to live lives that are consumed by the concern, the one single and great concern of making the Lord Jesus Christ known, of worshipping and proclaiming him, of loving him and helping others to know and love him and trust him as well. 
Please make each of us personally, each one of our marriages, and all of us together as a church, this kind of people. We pray in Jesus' name.